All right, so last week um, we got into chapter 2 of James, and we're going to start there today. We got through uh, verse uh, 5, I think, and uh, we'll back up a little bit to verse 1 and get a running start into the rest of the passage. Uh, just kind of for organization purposes, um, uh, next week uh, we'll pick up with verse 14 the uh, faith and works passage, which is always uh, fun to wrangle with as to um, what it means and how to apply it and all that sort of thing. So um, if you have in mind where we're heading, uh, that there should be some sort of connection between what your faith is and how it's practiced, you'll see elements of that in our passage for today. And, um, you know, it just kind of, it'll, it'll flow right into that. So, again, backing up to um, uh, verse 1 of, uh, of chapter 2, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You, stand over there, or... Sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are in the world to be rich in, in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So we're going to look at just a, a few um, uh, things that, by way of review, uh, begins with a command. Uh, we know James has some authority with the, the churches uh, uh, to whom he is writing, and uh, says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a command there. Uh, and uh, this verse is also noteworthy that there are only two uh, places in James where uh, Jesus is mentioned, and this is uh, one of them, the, the second of them. And he says, like, like I said, as we'll look in verse 14 and following, um, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you try to practice this faith, show no partiality. So there should be a connection between what you believe, what your faith is, and what you're doing. And he's kind of making that connection. It seems obvious, but he's going to go ahead and elaborate, elaborate on that in a moment. Uh, one comment also about the title. It says, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this um, is something that sounds familiar to our ears, but was kind of new back then to pull all those <coughs> titles together. Um, Lord, which typically would have been applied only to Jehovah God, and James is here acknowledging uh, Jesus is God, and then Christ, uh, the King, the Messiah, putting all those together, and then he says, the Lord of glory. Uh, one of the evidences, especially in the Old Testament, of, of God being God was the manifestation of glory. This, uh, you know, we know the story of Moses when he came down from the mountain. He had this Shekinah glory that was kind of infused upon him just because he had been in the presence of God. And so here we have James saying, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And also, if you kind of let that word glory hang in your ear a little bit, the section that follows is basically James saying, 
Now, as long as we're on the topic of glory, let's look at who you're choosing to bestow glory on. Because he's going to talk about, of course, the rich and the poor. And so it just kind of, it kind of seems to fit, you know, the Lord of glory. There's only one person who's really worthy of your glory. Um, so I, I think a little, um, a nice uh, device there that he's kind of perking up their ears about this concept of glory. Uh, one other thing I thought was interesting um, if you look in verse 2, it says, when this person comes into your assembly. Now, typically the word assembly um, uh, in the Greek, uh, in the New Testament, when it's used and translated assembly, is the word ecclesia, which is our word for church. And I've always pictured, and I think most of the sermons I've, I've heard have been uh, the typical story of the person who comes into your church and... Um, they may be new converts because otherwise they wouldn't have needed the direction that they're going to get. But um, apparently there's this other school of thought that says this may not be your typical just worship service, that this might have been a couple of Christians bringing their grievance, grievances to Christian court. Um, now if that sounds somewhat familiar or maybe not, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll hear this, this topic about um, how should believers resolve their conflicts. Of course, believers will have conflicts, right? Verse 1, it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? You can almost hear Paul saying, you know, that's ridiculous. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother. And he goes on, and basically the point is, if you've got a grievance... Take it to your fellow believers. Take it to your fellow believers. Take it to um, your church. Well, if you think about that as a rich man and a poor man coming in to have their case looked at, then this, there's um, a couple of times when the word judge is, is referred to later, kind of puts a different slant on it. And... Uh, one of the commentators said that uh, this is similar. There was um, some guidance that was given to rabbis back in the day and said, if two come to court and one is clothed in rags and the other in fine raiment worth a hundred manas, they should say to him, and I think this is kind of really wise. So to the, to the guys dressed richly, they say, all right, bud, you got two choices. You can either dress down like the guy who doesn't have very good clothes on, 
or you can pay to dress him like you are. <laughs> so that it's fair, right? Yeah. And, you know, James may have been thinking about that that says, look, you know, you can't make judgments based on outward appearances. And I, I just think this is really, I mean, it's really a helpful thing. And I think even in our courts today, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when um, the accused is in court and, and in front of an actual jury, they're not in their orange jumpsuit, they're dressed respectively, because it sends a message uh, to the juror. Um, so there's probably not enough in the text that the commentators uh, appear to agree to favor one view over the other. Is it talking about just like a worship service or is it talking about bringing a grievance before? It sounds like it could go either way, but I think it's really interesting to think of that type of scenario uh, because it kind of makes this other, um, make a little more sense in a way. Uh, because it says uh, in latter part of verse three, um, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become basically bad judges, judges with evil thoughts. Um, so anyway, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was, was interesting. So what are the reasons that this is an evil thing to do, that you become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, one commentator divided this into three sections, which I thought was helpful. Beginning in verse 5, it says, um, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So one reason that it's wrong to elevate the poor, or rather the rich, over the poor is that that's not what God does. God has actually chosen to be very gracious and, and uh, to, to bless the poor, uh, you could argue, maybe even preferentially. Um, uh, that not that there can't be rich Christians or poor pagans, but but God has has typically chosen to bless the poor, and and one of the one of the uh, features of the new kingdom is going to be where those things go away and there's equality and that sort of thing. So so one of the reasons that uh, it's bad to judge a book by its cover, so to speak, is that that's not the way God looks at at people. Uh, we know that Jesus did not respect persons, so to speak. Um, in Matthew 22, it says, Even his enemies admitted, you are not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, Jesus didn't look at, it, at the outward appearance, so we shouldn't either. So the second reason, uh, in verse 6, it says, uh, but you have dishonored the poor man. Aren't the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So this is odd, right? So they're in the position where they themselves were likely poor, but yet they are choosing to honor the rich, very likely the very people who would be oppressing them. I mean, it 
really doesn't make sense, right? Um, it's almost like the, these weird, I don't understand the psychology of it really, but this weird dynamic where you know, a victim of, of maybe uh, spousal abuse still stays there and, and still might want to take up for their spouse in some weird way. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, so one reason that this is evil to do is that it's just ridiculous, you know, that you're giving status to the very people that might oppress you. And then thirdly, heading into uh, the latter part of verse 7, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Um, certainly, uh, Jesus was despised and rejected. We know that. Uh, he grew up in a, on the bad part of town. Um, why would you want to? Why would you want to um, honor people who uh, would be dishonorable, so to speak? All right, now let's look at verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. So this last section has to do with the, the royal law. So we're going to talk about what, what does the royal law mean. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but, you, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we remember this concept, right? So turn to Matthew 22. This was um, one of the big confrontations. Um, Matthew 22, um, beginning with the verse uh, 34. One of the great um, moments between... Uh, Jesus and the Pharisees who were trying to um, trying to trip him up. Matthew twenty two thirty four. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now this is interesting, right? It's like the Pharisees said, Well, okay, the Sadducees couldn't tri trip him up, so we're up. Right? We're 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 up. We're gonna we're gonna take a shot here. Uh, Verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And... Uh, This is restated here in James, or basically quoted. Back to verse 8 in chapter 2, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, now, James essentially quoting Jesus, and Jesus 
uh, referring to Leviticus, this goes way, way back, way, way back. And um, the love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that the royal law? And several commentators I read kind of waxed uh, pretty poetic about some of this, and I, I thought it was worth repeating. Uh, it said it's the royal law. For one thing, it was given by the king. It was given by Jesus. I think that's good. And they said the second reason they thought it was called the royal law was because it rules all the other laws. That Paul says um, love is the fulfilling of the law, and this certainly talks about loving your neighbors yourself. So it rules all the other laws. And then the third point they made was that obeying it makes you a king. Now I had to think about that a little bit. Obeying it makes you a king. And I think the, the point here, and in, in James chapter 1, we, we heard about the, the perfect law of liberty. And I think one of the amazing things in, in Christianity is where you can talk about a law, a restriction we might think of, you know, laws, we have this connotation that they restrict us, but yet God's laws actually make us free, right? God's laws protect us and guide us in such a way that we're not slaves to, to sin. And I think this, this con, uh, comment that he makes that this is a royal law because obeying it makes you a king. Obeying it makes you a king. It makes you free from the laws of sin. And I think that's um, uh, some pretty good insight there. Some pretty good insight there that this makes us a king. You'll see the references here to a couple of the big uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. If you commit adultery, but you but you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. And the point here is is that uh, the law we have is a law that's spoken by God. And so when we transgress against part of it, we've transgressed against the person who's speaking the law, whether it's a little thing or a big thing. Uh, there's a, uh, a way of looking at the Gospels um, that basically says the, one of the purposes of Jesus' ministry and also John the Baptist's ministry was to let us feel the weight of the law and feel the weight that all of us have transgressed it, right? That all the efforts of the Pharisees who thought they were meeting every element of the law, even they weren't meeting it. And it's only when you feel the weight of all that that you start to really think that you need a Savior. You know, if you know that you are guilty, then you start to see that you need a savior. 
Um, have you talked to people who, it seems almost cliche, but there, I've, I've actually heard people say this, where they think that, well, you know, I think I've been good enough to get to heaven. You know, I th they know they're cutting it close, right? <laughs> they know they're not like first in line, but, but they just think that their combination of trying pretty hard and, and maybe God grading on the curve, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out for them. And, and so they don't, really, they don't really need a Savior. If, they're count, if that's their game plan, they don't. But, but if, you, if, you, if you feel the whole weight of the gospel, I mean, Jesus said basically, you know, if you're angry and, and um, speak falsehood against your brother, that's, you might as well be murder, Right? I mean, this was heavy, weighty stuff that Jesus was talking. I mean, the Ser Sermon on the Mount sounds all great and everything, but if you, if you really read it, there's some, there's some conviction there. And if you take the view that the purpose of, of Jesus was when he said, I came to fulfill the law, one way to look at that is to say, I'm here to show you just how hard it is because I'm the only one who's done it. And you haven't. And, and you need a Savior. And that's, the, that's the, the weightiness of it. That, yeah, commit adultery. Or don't commit adultery, but you do murder. You're a transgressor of the law. Um, so it says, verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In other words, um, reflect on the fact that you have a Savior. Reflect on the fact that, that you have received grace and mercy. Um, you know, have this view toward people, uh, recognizing that, um, you know, if you get a really good idea of your own sin, um, it's much harder to, to be critical of somebody else, Right? Um, I see this sometimes when I, I get to hear um, you know, someone who's going through some sort of um, relationship strife and, and uh, very often there's accusations about he or she did this or he or she did that and to kind of justify their current state. And um, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense sometimes, but... But very often, as, as the person starts to realize their own imperfections, kind of takes some of the heat out of their attack on the other person because they realize, well, no, I, I guess I'm not perfect either. And again, it's not a way of really justifying everything. But there is this, this argument here that, Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So James is saying be fair, be merciful, um, all those things, you know, and on to verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. In other words, 
Um, and we've seen echoes of this before, you know. Um, you know, he has shown mercy, will receive mercy, and vice versa. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, Jesus basically argued this. Um, uh, look at Matthew 5, since we're talking about Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 7, the Beatitudes, of course. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You don't have to turn here, but Luke 6, 35 says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And then that very next verse is, go, goes into to lessons about judgment. Um, a merciful attitude is one of the evidences that that Christ has saved you because then you you realize the mercy that you've received and it has an effect on you. So how do we um, how do we make sense of this? I mean, we're um, hopefully I mean we're all cultured now, so we wouldn't be as prejudiced to people in our assembly as these folks were, surely, right? We would never do that. Um, we feel like doing it. We might feel like <laughs> So I came across uh, one study, you know, that kind of makes the point, is this whole judging a book by its cover, or we all tend to value our opinion, right? We all, we all think nobody else is that good a judge of character, but I am, right? Um, so we value our own opinions. Um, so I came across this article where they said you can't really tell. You can't really tell. Um, sometimes when you, when you start to kind of be objective about a few things, uh, it it makes you realize you're not as good as you thought you were. Um, just to give a personal example, uh, in my practice, and this is true with, with most primary care physicians, you wind up dealing with a lot of uh, mood problems, you know, anxiety, depression, and all this sort of thing. And um, you get an idea of how someone's doing with their mood, right? So you're seeing them for a recheck, and you're thinking, okay, well, they're responding a little bit more today than the last time I saw them, and they don't seem as worried, and... It, you know, it looks like maybe their depression's getting better, and you say, "So how are you doing?" You know, with this, whatever, and and um, they might say fine or whatever, and it kind of reinforces your opinion. And well, we started using this little seven or eight question survey to kind of track how people were doing with their depression. It was like seven or eight questions, and it gives you a score, which is artificial, but it it's interesting and. You ask these questions, and I'm like, "Wow, you're you're actually not doing that well." 
you know, I thought you were doing pretty good, but this says you, you really weren't doing as well as I, I thought. And those questions brought out some other things and, you, and it was just a little bit humbling to me that, okay, um, I'm glad I'm doing this. I'm glad I'm asking and, and maybe brought out some things that they weren't even thinking of. And anyway, this reporter did this little um, experiment. So the experiment was, uh, can you tell how trustworthy somebody is based on what they look like, what their job is, etc.? So here was the experiment. So he's on a bike. There's people on the street. He drives up and gets off his bike and has a little conversation with whoever's standing there and says, hey, would you watch my bike for a minute? I've got to run into the store. All right? Well, then he has an accomplice who comes along a couple minutes later and tries to steal the bike. And the experiment was, what happens? He had security guards who let the guy just take the bike. The people that were most um, tenacious at preventing the bike from being stolen was a homeless couple that he had seen on the side of the street and said, hey, would you watch my bike? And when the guy came to steal the bike, they were all over him. They weren't letting, you know. And he gives, there were a lot of other different people, but that was the, the contrast. And they said, we don't have a lot of money, but we're trustworthy people. And my hunch is that they probably the, the possessions that they did have, they probably valued a lot, and they couldn't imagine somebody stealing somebody's stuff. That was probably, you know. And um, so one reason not to judge a book by its cover is that we're just not very good at it. We're not very good at it. And um, we, need to be, we need to be careful. Uh, I did some reading, and this isn't a, maybe a, a major point, but I didn't realize how much classification of people was in the Roman world and they made the point that there was really no middle class back then that you were poor like 90% of the time and there was maybe 10% of people who were rich and on the local level in, in the provinces where these people were you know the, the elite were all in Rome if you weren't in Rome you weren't considered elite it was you know and Old status, old money was valued the most. New money, if you had enough of it, was valued next. But in the, in the provinces, there wasn't, you know, they weren't in Rome, so they couldn't claim super high status. But apparently the way you got status was like having political office. But, and this was kind of interesting, you might, you might like this, that if you were, went into politics, then what you did was you basically paid for all the public works out of your pocket, right? So if there was, you know, some, I don't know if they had libraries, but let's say there was a library, you know, if you're running for mayor, then you'd build a library. Or if there needed to be, you know, a new sewer system, you'd pay for the new sewer system and you'd get a plaque. And I know, right? Um, and that was, 
that was how you got your status by basically doing that. I mean, if you ran for certain offices, then it was your job to provide corn for the whole county or whatever for the year. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, but the point is that there wasn't much social climbing back then. Uh, nowadays, you know, you can get a pop song and go from zero to celebrity you know, in 30 days if your YouTube video catches on. Um, you can go to, you know, higher education and, and maybe uh, change your status that way. So there's, you know, there, you've got hope of climbing the ladder, so to speak, uh, nowadays, but you didn't have that back then. And um, I, I just thought that was an interesting overlay to everything. Uh, I got one final little comment, but um, I guess I'll just pause there. And as you've thought about this, have you thought about what are some modern examples where where we do this, where we um, make distinctions, where we um, show favoritism? Have you come across this yourself? The church. Okay. Elaborate. You know, well, um, you know, I go to Sunday school more than she does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes me better Christian than she is. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, which is not true, you know. But so I, it seems to me that we might have a tendency to do something okay. like that. What about when we raise our children and we tell them to strive to be lawyers and doctors and not the garbage man? Mm -hmm. Plumbers. They should be plumbers. They should be plumbers. One time Clarence and I were in um, Bojangles in Waxhaw. This has been a few years back. And uh, uh, fella came in with a, a little one and they ordered and they sat down and and uh, he had tattoos I mean his entire body was full of tattoos and his clothes were kind of eh, not the cleanest and uh, I immediately jumped to a judgment and thought to myself I wonder if that's the only kid that guy's got or if he's got other little ones and I was being very negative and Clarence, because that's the way Clarence was, started talking to the guy and come to find out he was a minister and had a motorcycle gang ministry. And he said, you know, these people relate to me because I'm one of them. <coughs> and I thought, boy, slap me again. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. Um, uh, I think um, there's a reason why it's in the Bible, right? Uh, because this uh, is human nature. And I, I think that it's yet again one of the evidences uh, for the truth of Christianity. Um, I don't know if other religions really step on your toes like Christianity does. You know, it tells you, you know, what you, this natural thing you're doing is not right. And here's why it's not right. 
Um, uh, so it really speaks uh, the truth about uh, who we are and, and so forth. Um, anybody else? One other example I came across um, was actually the writer of one of the commentaries I was reading, and he says that he had, he was like 27, 28 years old. He had just finished his big doctoral project or whatever, and he had been invited to this big group discussion of a bunch of pastors and so forth, and they had rented out a room in a hotel, and there were, uh, it was like a reception to start, and and he says, those kind of things always make me uncomfortable. And he said, I noticed that there was a hotel staff. There weren't really enough of them to hand out the drinks and the hors d'oeuvres and all that sort of stuff. He said, so I, ju I just started pitching in and, and helping. And he said, I, I served this one guy, and he, I tried to strike up a conversation with him, and he just kind of blew me off. And, um, you know, that was that. Well, as luck would have it, as they all sat in a big circle and he found in the empty chair had to be right behind the guy and they had some preamble remarks and then he was introduced as being on the program so he stood up to say anything and the guy turned around and looked at him and said he just went pale <laughs> that but the ironic thing was afterwards he struck up a conversation was nice as anything and didn't even comment about his behavior earlier I thought that was really interesting, you know, that, you know, this guy had made a value judgment, you know, I guess because he happened to, the suit he happened to wear looked kind of like maybe part of the hotel staff, um, that he was just treated differently. And um, analogous of what's going on in the political world, the election of Mr. Trump and so forth, and the opposing party. <laughs> Will there ever be any compromise between them? <laughs> or any acknowledgement that one was right and the other was wrong or vice versa? I'll, um, I'll let the politics hang out there. <laughs> um, but uh, except to say that um, I think anyone would, would say that it's easy to argue against a stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. So for convenience, no matter what your persuasion, you always characterize your opponent in a particular way. And then you argue against that, which usually doesn't have the nuance, doesn't have the truth behind it. They call that setting up a straw man, right? Mm -hmm. You set up a straw man of the other person's argument, and then you attack. And uh, there's probably enough uh, guilt of that to go around. But uh, suffice it to say that this concept of mercy triumphs over judgment. I think one of the reasons mercy triumphs over judgment is when you realize that you're the one that needed that mercy. Then you're more likely to, to be generous with that with the others as well. So I guess we'll close uh, with that, and um, again, the concept that what you believe should make a difference with how you act. And so that'll be our lead into faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have received mercy and grace uh, through your son, Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.